Hello, Simply Amazing viewers. Welcome back to Simply Amazing. I am your host for this brief introduction, Lauren, your friendly neighborhood by. This week, we figured we would start a little series where we can look at our past episodes, um, some of our favorites, hopefully some of your favorites as well. And in honor of Curve finally getting laid in Legion of X number four, um, so I'm so sorry if you did not know that, but um, you have been told. So if you have not read it, go take a peek at the issue at least. Um, but we're going to revisit our episode with the lovely Dr. Anna Papard, uh, where we talked about Kurt and sexuality um, and delve more into those things. So again, this is a rewind episode and we hope that you enjoy revisiting this episode with us. Tweet at us at simply A-M-Z-I-N-G-P-O-D and let us know what you enjoy about listening to this episode again and give us a shout out as to what episodes you would like to revisit with us next. <music> Welcome everybody. Hello. Welcome back to Simply Amazing. We hope you guys are having the most Simply Amazing week as we are as well. And we have some Simply Amazing things to share with you before we get there. Before we get there, let's introduce ourselves. Am I right? Should, right? I mean, we're like, what, 10, 11 episodes in. You should know us by now. If not, I'm not offended. It's okay. Nice to meet you. How you doing? You know, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming around. I mean, listen, if this is your first episode, I want to get to know you. I want to know why this was your first episode of this podcast. That's what I want to know. Why you were like, curtain sexuality. Okay, now I want to listen. I want to know you now. Um, anyway, hi. <laughs> Everybody's a little horny in some way. In some way. Everybody's a little horny. Everybody's a little whatever. Um, oh my gosh. My mom listens to this podcast, guys. We got to be like, all right. Uh, hey, we, had, we talked about Satan before. Satan, shout out to you. That's true. You know? That's true. Shout out to Satan. Shout out to everybody. Uh, yeah. So I'm Lisa, aka the OG Nocturne, aka Nocturne. You can find me anywhere online. We also have my absolutely fabulous, wonderful, phenomenal co-host, the fabulous, the wonderful, the gorgeous, the phenomenal you're gonna turn me into a butterball. It's not even Thanksgiving yet. Um, no, I, no. I don't plan to buy a turkey. I plan to fry you. So that's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least I'm getting fried by somebody. Um, hi guys, I'm Lauren. Um, as I'm called on the Twitter, your friendly neighborhood by. Um, I am particular excited about this episode because while I am also a horny crazy person i also am very interested in talking uh, uh more specifics and academically or whatever about um our topic today so really excited to have somebody else on with us too yes yes i, I was very in the lead a little bit there but we do have a guest on this week guys it's our very first official guest on the nightcrawler podcast simply amazing who else could we have asked but kurt wagner's unofficial pr agent <laughs> The wonderful, the great Dr. Anna Papard. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. I am honored to be the first guest. I will forever go down in history in this role. I'm sure it will be my proudest accomplishment. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. It thank you for that. Be. 
I, I'm gonna pretend I didn't hear any sarcasm in that because you're there so was none. right. It is going there to was be. none. No sarcasm. <laughs> no, of course not. No, listen, we're just we're three ladies who love Nightcrawler, and we're gonna talk about it. So, um, I just want to for those of you who are unfamiliar, and if listen, if you love Nightcrawler as much as us, and you've stuck around for this many episodes, you should really know who Doctor Anna Picard is. I mean, she's the co-host of, of course, uh, oh gosh, oh golly, oh wow, um, the. Accelerate podcast, but just give you a little deep dive into who she is. She is a PhD haver who writes and talks a lot about representations of gender and sexuality in pop culture for academic books and journals and places like Comics XF, Shelf Dust, The Middle Spaces, and The Walrus. She's the editor of the award-winning anthology Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero, and co-hosts the podcast Three Panel Contrast. And like I just mentioned, Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow, Gosh Golly Wow is a weekly issue-by-issue recap and analysis of the classic Excalibur issues, which is just one of uh, Anna's many duties in her important job, as I mentioned, as Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. Girl, have you gotten a letter back yet? I mean, I know you've been writing. (laughs) (laughs) A friend did me a very kind joke letter that made me tear up a little bit, and I think that's the best that I'm probably going to (laughs) do. Oh, was was the joke letter at least an acceptance or a rejection? Oh, an acceptance, an acceptance. Okay, good. Okay, good. good. Happy tears. Happy tears. Okay, good. So, so what I'm hearing is that we should be your official, like, your official groundbreaking movement to get you to be Kurt's official <laughs> PR person. We we can promote this for you. We can make it happen. It might take a couple years, but I think we can do that. We'll be sure, I'm 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 happy for us all to be on the team. Very happy. <laughs> it's okay. I'll be the I'll I'll be the treasurer. I'm not good at math. I'm not good with money, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm thinking about like I'm thinking about like when you run for office in high school. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> you're you're you'll be secretary, Lisa. That's your job. Oh, yes, I will. See, Daddy, see, gonna... see? see? Mm-hmm. Can't yes, take I you will. anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Can I freshen your coffee, Mr. Wagner? See that? There you go. Actually, I said his name wrong. It's Wagner. See, I can't see. This is how much I love him that, like, I can't even do a stupid fake accent and make fun of his name. I have to correct myself. Oh, no, it's Wagner, guys. I can't. I can't. (laughs) So, anyway, let's get to the meat of this, everybody. So, we are here to talk about Kurt and sexuality. I mean, this is uh, what Anna does best. This, this is this, you know, I just read you know, what she's known for, uh, which is, of course, this anthology, Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero. Arguably, there is no character, I mean, granted, I'm I'm preaching to the choir here, quite literally. Um, There's no character more sexual than Nightcrawler, I would say, in the X-Men, but in a very unique way, because he's not you know, if you were to pick up the comic and look at him, you wouldn't say, oh, this is a very sexual character, you know, offhand. You would like, you know, or looking at like a a, a playing card of him or, 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 or trading card of him or looking at his depiction in any most of the cartoons. You wouldn't say, oh, this is a character that has a lot of sensuality or sexuality. Um, but then when you actually delve into the actual meat of the comics and, and, and how he's been depicted, that certainly is. Before we get into that topic, though, I do want to ask Anna a couple questions just about kind of how she found Kurt and, you know, her little journey to finding Kurt and uh, and the X-Men and, um, you know, why he tickles her fancy. <laughs> well, or- Lisa, I love it. I mean, I was, <laughs> assuming, I was assuming we were going to be talking about Velvet Fur and Tails today, so that's appropriate. Oh, yes, queen. Yes. 
Absolutely. Well, so just out of curiosity, you know, what first attracted you to him? What was the first thing you saw him in? Like, what was the first time you were like, who is this blue guy? I want to learn more. You know, it's funny because X-Men was kind of my last Marvel franchise. I got really into superhero comics in my early 20s when I was actually still in school doing a post doc thing and then a master's but I kind of read Avengers and Marvel Cosmic and sort of every other franchise prior to that and a bunch of DC franchises as well and I was like you know I guess I'll get around to X-Men so I just started from the beginning um read the Lee Kirby original comics and then kind of lost interest in those for for the obvious reasons they're not very good and then jumped ahead to giant size number one and nightcrawler became my favorite character pretty quickly sort of as soon as he stopped being kind of that misanthropic character that he was in some of the very early issues and started being more of that kind of fun and empathetic character and the more of a swashbuckling character he quickly became my favorite and I've told the story a little bit on the Gosh Golly Wow pod, but for the benefit of your listeners, it was really a turning point for me when the character did become more sort of accessible to sort of a sexual gaze that very much like sort of humanized the character and made some of the feelings that I already had for the character very um, allowed and present. And I often go back to the Burt Reynolds callback in Uncanny X-Men number 168 as, or is it 168 or 169? I should know that off the top of my head. Um, I know what you're talking about and yeah. I don't know the exact issue either. I'm terrible <laughs> with issue numbers. I'm the absolute worst with issue numbers, but yeah, I know exactly the, the yum panel. Am I right? Yeah, the, yeah, Aman- yeah. the yum panel. So the one where Amanda comes in and he's posed on the couch um, doing a callback to Burt Reynolds, 1972 Cosmos centerfold, the first male centerfold in Cosmo, which I know a little bit about this historically. It appeared at the behest of legendary Cosmo editor, Helen Gurley Brown, who wanted to feature it to prove that women had the same visual appetites as men. So having Kurt appear in this pose is very significant in terms of the ways that the character, I would argue, has often been framed um, in ways that appeal to to a female gaze, not exclusively a female gaze, but it's just those are often the surrogates, well, almost always the surrogates we have in the story, other than that famous Isan Ribbit cover of Wolverine number six. But anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> the uncanny scene, and I'm putting aside the Amanda Foster sister thing, so I don't want to talk about it. We all hate it, and it's weird, and let's just ignore it. We're not getting um, into it right now, now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so I mean, that scene's really important. You have sort of a woman coming in, and you have her gaze very much foregrounded in the layout of the page. She is looking at Kurt, and we're invited to look at him, too. And I mean, it's funny. Like, I mean... Kurt uses humor as sort of part of his character. So the scene is inevitably funny. And because it's sort of a parody of the Reynolds scene, it's funny. And yet his sexuality, I think, is treated quite seriously. Because in the next issue, you get him naked in the hot tub with Amanda and then teleporting around the city naked. And I think we are invited to think he's attractive in those images, even though we're encouraged to bring some humor to the scene as well. And the other important part of the Burt Reynolds pose that we do need to highlight is the presence of the BAMP doll in that scene. Oh, yes. So Kurt has this doll of himself known as a BAMP doll, which he presumably made himself. It's never been quite clear. And it's passed between various characters over the years, but it was originally given to Amanda. So in the Uncanny One, I think it's 169. Anyway, in the scene, of course, the BAMP doll is covering his genitals. And so it's an interesting commentary on Kurt as an object, He's sort of inviting Amanda to play with him. He's inviting Amanda to consume him through sort of the metaphor of champagne, which he's holding with his prehensile tail, but also the invitation to, you know, 
play with him in the sense that he is comparing himself to a toy of himself. And that's really, really interesting, sort of the number of levels that that hits on in terms of making that character accessible to the gaze. And so that scene just fascinates me. And then, you know, you see Kurt becoming sort of an even sexier character in the pages of Excalibur, originally written by Claremont and then later by Davis. You know, it's so funny because um, I never made the connection between the the Burt Reynolds picture and this panel. Um, but it's so clear. Even Burt Reynolds, like, didn't he have like a puppy, like kind of covering his area? Or his he was, is his like ha- on his is on a bearskin rug, and then he's just got the hand over his crotch. <laughs> oh, is that it? It's the, okay. I'm, I don't know where the puppy came from. Maybe it's because of the bearskin rug. I'm just assume I'm assuming furry I... things. I, I got furry things you, in the brain. So there you go. I love how you broke down that because I've never read into the panel in that way. And like the toy thing, I would have never made that connection. But that's just utterly hilarious to me because and, and in a good way though. Like it's 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 not like it's wrong. It's it's so well done on on uh Claremont's part and that, you know, he gives he gives all these layers to sexuality and everything he's written, particularly with the X Men, because he wrote them so long, and, and sexuality seems to be so important to Claremont. And like, and, and the fact that he can write something like, "Oh, Kurt has no problem being used as a toy because he's being played with, and he enjoys that, and it's not bad." And like, it's just, it's it's a thing. Like the fact that he writes that as such a normal part of a character that is also seen as so loving and innocent in some ways. Cause Kurt is a character that he's seen as both an object, but yet innocent and finding the balance between those ideals and how they can both exist at the same time. It's incredibly hard to do. Yeah. I love that comment on the character's innocence. Cause that's a really interesting take on it too. And I think that that makes a lot of sense in terms of the accessibility of that character, because he approaches a scene like that sort of very honestly. I mean, it is almost innocent the way he's like, this is fine. And, you know, the (laughs) acceptance of multiple gazes just by doing that, like there's no guilt present, you know, like in a scene like that, you're just invited to. And I mean, the fact that he's a demonic character too really, really matters in terms of, you know, if you go all the way back to sort of like medieval and Renaissance art, it's that kind of figure who is a succubus, right? Who's, you Mm -hmm. know, a symbol of deviant desires, who's going to corrupt particularly young women, but also gentlemen as well. And so to have that be a character who were invited to consume and not feel guilty about consuming, that really speaks back to a lot of deeply sort of rooted historical bigotry related to sex. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's funny that you talk about like the idea of the succubus and the incubus and everything in, in history and, and art history in general. And, you know, that those, those demons are demons of like, those are not demons of consent. They don't, they take without consent, mm-hmm. but like, there's nothing about this panel that's non-consensual. You know what I mean? It, well, everything feels very consensual because even like when Amanda enters like her and granted, I hate that her reaction is yum. I think it is the cringiest <laughs> reaction. It's just, I mean, granted, it might be, a, it might be a product of the time because maybe that's just something that they said at the time. But for me, like yum. Ugh, Look, uh. People have different ways of expressing what they like and it, it's fine. <laughs> that's it's not like, the biggest problem with Amanda. It's not, there, but it's yeah. not. No, it's, de- it's definitely not the biggest it. problem. It's definitely <laughs> the biggest problem. Yeah. It's just that this, this is a Lisa issue. It's not a, it's not an issue in general. It's a Lisa issue. I just don't We're like gonna, it. I'm like, gonna make a one day of all the Lisa tangents that you go on. The Lisa <laughs> issue episode. Oh, girl, we could have an entire <laughs> other podcast called the Lisa issues. <laughs> but like, I love too with the whole um comparing him because you know he's more demonic figure and stuff. It's funny because in this scenario, you could argue 
that based on the context of that panel that um that Kurt is the one being corrupted because he's the object. Yeah. He's the one being looked upon even though he is the demo- demonic figure, right? And it's so interesting in that way because the roles have flipped and either way it's consensual, right? Like you said, Lisa, like she is enjoying looking upon him and sexualizing him in that way. And he is enjoying it as well. It's completely just understood that it's, it's, it's okay. And that doesn't make him any less of, you know, how he looks demonically and that doesn't make him any less innocent than he acts. Yeah. And I mean, you're bringing up a really good point, too, about sort of the gender play and the presence of that in a lot of the sort of sexy Kurt scenes that we've had over the years. I mean, you can think about Excalibur number one, too, which has Kurt in a sexy bath, you know, with the water just mm-hmm. high enough that we can't quite see his penis, but definitely wants us to know that he has Damn a penis, it! that there's something to hide. He likes those English bathtubs. He, he does. He can out. stretch out. I mm-hmm. need to see more. <laughs> but anyway and Megan interrupts him in the bath there and he's very much sort of put in the stereotypically feminine role there and she actually compares him to Joan Collins as well in her dialogue and you know you can think of other scenes from Excalibur you know in Excalibur uh, 15 we get Kurt in female drag flirting with Brian in Excalibur number 7 and 8 the Inferno issues um, we get Kurt flirting with a gender ambiguous gargoyle there's just so many little things like that throughout Excalibur and in the classic Warlord issue two from Excalibur number 16, um, yeah. he's seduced by a female succubus and yes. becomes sort of a male consort and stuff, which isn't, that is a common sort of story that you see in John Carter from Mars, but still there are elements in which Kurt can be feminized in a story like that by being put in sort of the more stereotypically feminine role in good and bad ways. I think that's a complicated story because there's issues of consent involved. But for female gazy characters, they often have that element of gender play and even sort of an element of gender fluidity to their bodies as well. You see that, you know, time and time again, you know, in female gazy fan fiction, you know, the ways that they describe male characters as having sort of elements of femininity and it's common in romance novels as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting, too, because I think it's sort of a way that those characters become accessible, but it's also a way that speaks to the dream of those characters having empathy for sort of female Mm. readers and fans too right so to me and I mean this is a very subjective thing but you said you wanted to go fanish so it's like Kurt has elements of like connotative femininity again I'm not essentializing everything anything but in terms of connotative femininity so stereotypical femininity um in his body right I mean I've talked before on the gosh golly wow podcast about the symbolism of his tail it's both a phallic symbol but it can be a feminine symbol as well in the sense that it both thrusts and squeezes right it's a very interesting symbol and it's used I'm as I'm sure both this. of you know <laughs> as I'm sure both of you know is used in lots of different ways in fan fiction like to symbolize different things right and so that's yeah. interesting. And then I'm very obsessed with the idea. Lisa is fanning herself with with <laughs> paper right now. She literally talking. pulled out a whole ass fan. It's my that's Golden Girls fan. fan. That's perfect. That is absolutely perfect. <laughs> I got it at Comic Con. We, we need a Kurt one. We need Kurt fans. We do someone make a Kurt fan? I'll buy it. <laughs> And of course, the other thing like I'm absolutely obsessed with is the fact that he has this fur that feels like velvet, right? You know, mm-hmm. revealed back in Excalibur 44 when Miss Amelia Weatherspoon asks if she can stroke his fur, strokes his fur. He says, of course, because he's Kurt, um, strokes his fur <laughs> and is like, my, my, blue velvet. That broke my brain a little bit and I don't think I've ever really recovered. 
But, you know, in terms of what a perfect metaphor that is for Kurt having sort of a soft masculinity, right? He's got a hard masculine body that is literally soft. Yeah. And so these kind of things really interest me as sort of a scholar of gender and sexuality and superheroes, for sure. And as a fan, because I'm interested in gender fluid characters more generally. It's fascinating. You know, it's funny because so many of us are fans, but we don't pick up on these, you know, kind of subconscious or kind of behind the scenes meanings, you know, we don't always know why we're attracted to these characters. We just know we really like them. And then when we hear you break it down, suddenly it's like, this makes so much sense now seeing, you know, why we are attracted and, and why we're so drawn to these. And, you know, I was just on Oh Gosh, Oh Gosh, Oh Wow with you guys. And um, which that I think might come out after this, which is fine. Um, Probably come out a couple weeks after, but yeah. 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 So when we're, when we were talking on, um, you know, we mentioned this on Oh Gosh, Oh Wow about, you know, the majority in my experience of Kurt's fan base is more female presenting um, that I tend to meet. Um, it tends to be more female presenting or very like LGBTQ. It, it seems to be, uh, that seems to be like the core of Kurt's fan base. And I find that to be very interesting. And I think that that has a lot to do with, you know, how he's been depicted over the years. He, you know, Kurt is kind of um, your the like he's your typical like approachable guy. Uh, he doesn't. He looks demonic and he looks terrifying, but he's actually the nicest guy in the whole world that would do anything for you and anything for any friend and anything for anybody he cared about. And you know that's the amazing dichotomy I think that is in him uh, that I think attracts a lot of us. And when you talk about the the female gaze. Um, you know, there aren't a lot of characters that take the female gaze into account. And I don't necessarily know that it was intentional in the beginning at all with Nightcrawler to do that. I think that they kind of like floundered into it. I don't really think I, it was intentional to make him as female gazy as he was. I, I would like to hear what Anna has to say about that, but I don't, I don't know that that would. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's interesting in general with the whole like, it always interests me when I when we talk about any character and we talk about if a fan base is more one gender or the other, especially nowadays where we're all constantly breaking gender with trans oh, yeah. becoming accepted and non-binary and all these different things, right? Um, but it's incredibly interesting. You know, I, I think Kurt has a huge fan base and it's not just women and not just LGBT. And I don't think that's what you're saying at all, but I don't even think that's the majority of his fan base. I think that's the people that are the most passionate about him yeah. tend yeah. to be that. Like there's plenty That's of fair. men who love Nightcrawler and they'll oh, yeah. Say, oh, yeah, I like him and yeah, he's enjoyable. But yeah, the I, I I agree with the fact that it seems that, you know, more of these are groups of people are drawn to him and it, I don't know. I like him a lot, especially with his sexuality and all that because he is this mix of so many different things. He's so, he's a huge mix of masculinity and feminine put together. But why does that seem to identify more with women or people that are gender non-conforming, things like that, than, you know, the average cis man? Um, but they still like him, too. It's it's really interesting to see why that's a thing. This is my take on the character. I've said this many times that I feel like his character is like he's very he's desperate for like he, he he's one of those characters like he wants to settle down. He wants the two kid, two and a half kids, the picket fence <laughs> and like the. You know, the American dream, the two and a half kids, the picket fence, the dog and the cat. That's what he wants, you know? And listen, with Wanda, he could have a half kid. Like, he really could. So, oh, Lord. You know, she can do anything. She can make, like, she could do three quarters a kid. 
whatever, whatever you want, she can make it happen. But what I'm, I'm joking here, but <laughs> you know, uh, but that's my read on the character. But, um, but yeah, though he does make a lot of silly decisions because I think he is impulsive. I've referred to him several times. Uh, as, as he's impulsive in relationships. I've referred to him several times as the Michael Scott of the X-Men when it comes to relationships, because like, he's the guy who, um, is ready to propose like three dates in as we saw in X-Men gold, which I mean, we don't have to talk about X-Men gold at all, but like <laughs> he wanted to propose to Rachel in X-Men gold. I mean, the Kurt, she's not, she's a lesbian, Kurt. Yes. You're right. She is. She is a stud ass lesbian, which honestly, and she's through every woman. That could have been an interesting story if someone had taken it in that direction, but of course they did not. Oh my God. I would have died to see him propose and her be like, like we haven't had sex yet. Like, <laughs> like, like I don't like. Have you have you noticed every time you take your clothes off, I wince? Like, oh no. my god. Well, I I hate to bring it up, but it is relevant to our previous conversation, which is that canonically Rachel owned a Bamp doll as a child. She did. Oh that. Oh my god. Let's. Oh god. Yeah, there's an expanded so like panel where where, where like. Rachel is being given a Bamp doll as a baby. <laughs> That, so I, I I didn't I didn't want to go in this direction because I was like, ah, is this going to be weird? But now that you bring it up, because you <laughs> talked in the beginning about the Bamf doll being like this kind of like sexual thing, like this object. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah, but, it doesn't it doesn't have to be. I want to be clear about that. I oh, like think oh, yeah. that it can have that. And I actually did a Claremont thread thread sort of about Bamf dolls, sort of talking about that a little bit. But I mean, I think that there's a lot of different ways you can read that too, in terms of like sexual safe spaces and stuff, because it interestingly becomes a symbol of exchange between several like queer coded younger female X Men. And so, like, I think that that can take on a different connotation. It, it can still have like an element of of sexuality there, but not necessarily. I want to have sex with Kurt more or that sort of the acceptance that he represents can be sort of a safe space that you can give to other people in exchange with other people. So I think it's a very sort of diffuse mm-hmm. symbol yeah. and I don't want to like make it more creepy than it has to be. Oh yeah, no, of course not. Cause like I'm off the top of my head. It's like the people who I know have Bamf have owned Bamf dolls are Amanda, Rachel, Ileana. I don't think Kitty ever had one. I think Ileana had Kitty, it, right? Kitty, I think I've traced this too, that Kitty ended up with it. And then okay. she oh. ended up giving it to Ileana when oh, um, Ileana gets did she? And then it becomes Jubilees after Ileana dies. And then Jubilee later oh, mails really? it back to Kitty. And then Kitty has it until the end of Excalibur. So all these characters, okay. they're queer coded. And some of them, like Jubilee, certain writers wanted to have come out as not straight. Mm-hmm. And then they were denied by, you know, editorial. And it definitely is a symbol of exchange between Kitty and Ileana. Oh, Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, and that's that's why I was thinking we mentioned Banff doll and and Lisa was like, oh no, and I was like, no, no, but that's a beautiful thing about Kurt's character and what that doll can represent in a huh, better light, right? Is yeah, it's the acceptance of sexuality. It's the introduction to hey, sexuality is very vast and it's very contextualized and it's not always just about gender, even though gender is a huge part of it and stuff, right? And that's one thing I just really love about Kurt's character in general is even under all the layers of humor and stuff that we put, right? That humor doesn't erase the seriousness and, and the real undertones behind all of this, you know? Absolutely. I, I do want to say like, as far as the sexuality and gender, I mean, his daughter also had a Banff doll, but like, I'm like crossing <laughs> my fingers. I'm, I'm telling my... you, not Kurt's not straight. Kurt's not straight. <laughs> I, I, okay. A total aside. 
I was just randomly on, I was randomly looking up stuff and I found this whole article about House of M, um, what Nocturne's role in House of M that I'd totally forgotten. There's a whole moment where she possesses Rachel and I'm like, oh my God, Nocturne was inside Rachel. We can make this happen. <laughs> <laughs> we can make this happen. Like, okay, anyway, moving on. Well, right. can, we, can we get back to the, because you asked me earlier about whether yes. I thought sort of like the female gaziness of the character is intentional. Yes, and I did I actually just want to say, I just want to say really that I do think it's intentional and it's not consistent across writers and eras, of course, but I think it certainly is intentional in the Claremont era. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that that, you know, Burt Reynolds callback is very intentional, but also things like you have an Excalibur often, not often, but like several memorable times sort of female gazes being acknowledged, you know, in one of the early issues, they're going down into the, I think it's like issue two, possibly. Anyway, they're going down into the, into the subway. And interestingly, a number of male characters run away from Kurt and are like, oh, a demon. And then you see a young girl saying, oh, a cutie. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's clearly kind of aware of that. And then at the end of the girls go from Hex storyline, you have sort of a bunch of teenage girls fawning over him and being is that tail really prehensile? Oh, real fur, real fangs. Be still my heart. <laughs> and there is, yeah, a listener that possibly is a listener of your podcast, uh, Sue Wisterfield, who definitely expressed her fandom for Kurt around that time and, yeah, knows that he was aware of it anyway, that he had that fan base. <sighs> And That's good to know. yeah, so I think that it is acknowledged. And I mean, even in later comics, you see it acknowledged. And this isn't a particular favorite comic of mine, but the acknowledgement of sort of female fans is still uh, significant is the um, X-Men Manifest Destiny one shot where the woman Mara Keller builds the Nightcrawler Museum in his honor. Oh, where she sniffs the bamf. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> so I, I, I'm not crazy about that one because sleeping with a fan is icky and the way it plays out is sort of icky. There's like this kiss and it doesn't really seem super consensual and I'm not a huge fan of it. But, you know, I like the acknowledgement that of course it would be a woman who builds this like museum yeah. to Nightcrawler and then invites him to Germany, maybe to honeypot him. I don't know. I don't want to judge. You know, I'm not saying if he was real, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> So, in theory, that could have been a story I like. The way it played out, I have mixed feelings, but still. I mean, well, and you know, I, I see that as the equivalent of us in our time, like, like tweeting at celebrities, hoping they'll notice. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's the same kind of thing. I, like, she went extra building the whole museum. I will just say, like, the fact that she sniffed his bamf to me is like, <laughs> girl, we I know mean- that smells awful. I mean, I. I, I love I love the whole thing though because with all you're talking about like you know women like fawning over him and loving him it doesn't sound like it was done in a light though of like oh look at these stupid fangirls because that's the thing like being a fangirl is still like yeah. a very negative yeah. context yes, still yeah, nowadays much. it's getting better yeah but it's still like oh my god these crazy fucking fangirls but like these women fawned over him so much and Claremont wrote it in such a way that was like oh, it's just, it's just as great as when men really admire women too. And, and Claremont in particular has always, he seems to be one of those men who really is fascinated with how we think, how women think and really admires what we do and think. And he, he does a better job than a lot of other uh, male writers that think like him or similarly, where he wants to basically praise women and put us on a pedestal and stuff, but he does it in a way more respectful way. And he doesn't go over the top too often, even after 17 plus years. Um, And it's so nice that, you know, uh, Kurt kind of gets to receive that. I don't know. The more I think about the more I'm kind of like, I feel like Claremont wishes he was Kurt. Like what if Kurt is like the man he wanted to be like that perfect balance of exactly what women want 
and admire and I think Cockrum and Davis wanted to be Kurt. I think Claremont wants to be Aurora Monroe. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> That's fair. That's I, fair. I think Claremont wanted to be I I I wouldn't I don't know if I 100% say Storm, but definitely one of the women. Like Claremont was mm-hmm. all about the women. But um no, yeah, Cockrum 100%. He was Kurt. Like that was all he was all about. Well, it's so Kurt. interesting though because what Kurt became is completely different than what he originally intended him to be. A hundred percent, like one eighty degrees, because you know, like you mentioned when we first started this episode, Anna, like the whole reason we love him isn't because of his demon and cringy ways or even undertones he has even now. It's the fact that he's empathetic, the fact that he has fun loving and and fallible and and all these other things. You know, that's the biggest reason so many of us love him. I feel like. Anyways, my point was it just interests me that I don't know why Cockrum would want to. Like, it interests me that Cockrum, you know, Kurt was his baby through and through, but his baby became something he never intended it to be. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question about sort of the collaborative nature of authorship, right? Because, I mean, Cockrum's original version of the character is very different than the one that we ended up getting in Uncanny. And yet, when that character kind of starts to develop, you know, Cockrum brings a lot of his own personality sort of into the character and changes them into a different character. Because, I mean, when you think about when we talk about quote-unquote fun Nightcrawler, like the swashbuckling Nightcrawler, it's like we're always talking about the 85 Cockrum miniseries. Mm -hmm. And, like, even if people Mm -hmm. haven't read that miniseries, you know, every time the character gets rebooted to kind of be that version of the character it's always a callback to that it's always like space pirate ships and like sword fighting with his tail and that's like the 85 like the john carter the john carter of it all Mm -hmm. i thought immediately of that when we were talking about like cockrum's vision for the character i mean his vision for the character when he first envisioned it obviously is not what the character uh became when it was pitched to marvel period um but then i think that I think that the the 85 uh, miniseries, the Nightcrawler miniseries, I think that is what Cockrum wanted. Like, I I think that was eventually like when he finally was like, this was, this was, this is exactly the character I want to be. That was his like dream of who the character should be. And interestingly, his his dream of who the character should be is a character who would rather stay in a complete other dimension to have sex with the princess than go home with his friends. (laughs) Right. And he wasn't, he wasn't originally written as a like, sexy lovable character and now that's exactly what he is mm-hmm. you know contrary to um some people's belief he is a very sexy lovable character <laughs> and Cockrum wanted the opposite at and uh, in, in the original inception mm-hmm. i i just i love that mini it's so fun it's so silly it's it's got it's a little stupid it's so moments. Good. i like i, I actually to. i i i have it on my wall too like i one of my favorite oh, moments yeah, from I've it. i got one up there too. <laughs> oh, I see yeah. it. Yes. <laughs> one of my favorite moments in general from that whole, uh, that whole, co- that whole mini isn't even a, it's not even a, it's not even a, a panel that has Kurt in it. It's, and I put it on the website, the Simply Amazing Pod website I put together. Um, it's the panel of Ileana and Kurt where she's like, Kitty, he's out there giving someone a free show. <laughs> I just love that so much because it's so silly. It's like they accidentally teleported back his uniform. And then immediately after that, they teleport his uniform back to him and they go back <laughs> to him. And he's sitting there like clearly dazed, like what the hell just happened? My clothes blinked off and on me. <laughs> and the princess is like, how did you do that? And can you do it again and it's like oh my god i love it every moment of this is amazing 
there's one that always makes me laugh where it's the scene where Shagreen, the shark, like falls over the edge of the pirate ship and Kurt's looking over the edge. He's like, oh, I should try to save him. It's probably too hard. And then he just immediately <laughs> turns around and it's like, hi, princess, I'm Kurt Wagner. I'm the greatest at everything. <laughs> it's just such super dickery. But I mean, I don't mind like some fun super dickery from Kirk. We're not, I'm Kirk. I'm not asking for him to be perfect. <laughs> Listen, if a guy's trying to kill you and he falls over the uh, over off of a pirate ship, I don't judge somebody for being like, you know what? I'm going to leave you there. Like, it's fine. You well, know? Yeah, I, I don't guy. judge him. He's a shark. He's a shark well, man. You want to save them when you have a pretty woman right there. Like, <laughs> I'm going to pick the pretty woman. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, when it comes down to it, I feel like we just we just got to find Kurt the right pretty woman that he, so he's not chasing after, like, lesbians and alien princesses who are going to murder him. So, <laughs> Or depending on the shipper you are, man, because I also I don't think Kurt say, is straight, yeah. but whatever. <laughs> okay, so that is going to bring me into my next question. Anna. Who's your OTP with Kurt? Oh, you know, I don't <laughs> like to I don't like to limit my options with him. I mean I've Neither does him, girl. I've ridden him with it's a lot of Kurt different Buffet, people you're right. over the years. I have definitely ridden Kurt Logan slash. Um, and I have ridden him with female characters as well. I've ridden him with Storm. I've ridden him with Kitty Pride. Don't yell at me. Not within the context of Excalibur when everything's underage. I promise. I promise. I watch I promise. X-Men Evolution. I know, you're okay. I know. I know it's like a ship that a lot of people hate and I apologize. But partly it was sort of like to see if I could make it work. And then when people said that I did make it work and were like, I couldn't believe you made that work. I was too encouraged and wrote more. <laughs> so, but anyway, yeah, I am super conscious of the fact that a lot of people hate that ship and that is fair enough. I'm not fighting for it to happen in the comics or anything. Fan fiction is a space of possibility and not everything is for everybody. Um, True. But yeah, and I I don't, I ha- I'm interested in like the Kurt Wanda ship as well. I mean, I often try to think about what relationship, like what canon relationship he was the happiest in. And I think elements of like the Cerise relationship had potential. I wasn't, I have issues with it in terms of some of her sort of naivety and the ways that the character wasn't developed as much as I would have liked to see, but while they were together, they seemed happy. They have some scenes together that I enjoy, but yeah, I don't know. In terms of like, definitely not Amanda. I mean, yeah, I yeah, love some of their scenes together, but let's just like, that can stay in the past. It's, it's complicated. <laughs> there, there's a lot of um, uh, awkward things going on there. I agree with you. I think Cerise was probably, as far as like a canon relationship, probably the best one he's had. I mean, because our other options are like Amanda, which is his sister, Again, I just, I have this. It's weird. Move on. It's it, fine. If, if, you call, if you call the same woman mom, I don't care about genetics. You can't date them. Like, it's just, it, it's just the way it is. I'm sorry. Um, so there's that. Um, and then there's Rachel, who's a lesbian. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, the, the only other one that I was like, I never understood why he just, just refused was Christine Palmer. Because she threw her like she was begging him like, I think within the context of that series it was a weird time and place where the priest retcon had just happened and yeah, I true. think that there was some sort of indecision about where they were going to go with the character because that's a very very sexy series and it's it a is. very gay series as well and yet I think some of the uncertainty about sexuality in that series has to be sort of attributed to kind of that uncertainty of that period because it, it kind of, like that series happened just a year after the priest retcon you're absolutely right. That makes a lot of sense because because you're right. It is a very sexual. There's that whole scene where like Kurt is showering and Storm is just sitting right there with a towel. 
mm-hmm. and it's like like the x-men don't have a door i mean listen it's great for the gays i'm just thinking like as a human being like you guys don't have doors on your showers and like you just sit around <laughs> like waiting as your I friend mean, showers I, like it, to me i just you know it's 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 but it's that's a- also the thing everybody's different there are people in real life that do that and it's fucking sure. normal and we're here like why would you do that absolutely like- absolutely it just again it's a it's very gazy and it is very sexual but yeah christine palmer there's a whole scene where she's basically like he he's like i need a shower and she's like my apartment's right there and they go to her apartment and he's like and she basically is like you're naked in my apartment right now like what's next and he's like i can't girl i can't it's like oh, fuck. i know why why Are, does your sister have her claws that deep dude i mean like and she's in it too so you know my deep cut fan in reading of that series is that because kurt hasn't really been with a quote unquote regular human woman before mm-hmm. And I mean, I can see him having some distrust and issues with that. He is a celebrity. He does have a very different body. And I can see there being sort of a suspicion there and sort of a hesitancy there because that actually hasn't been part of his experience. So that's my deep fan in cut of like why he'd be a little bit nervous about Christine because she's a bit fanish in that series too. She's like seen, you know, his VHF, you know, his uh, VHF, like what it was like behind the superhero special or something. So she knows these Spanish like celebrity culture things about him. yeah but at the same time like that page where he's in her apartment like after the shower and then that's a really for any listeners who haven't seen it before i do highly encourage you to read that series because it's very very gazy and very interesting and actually a series that i return to a lot despite having certain issues with it but that page where he's sort of foregrounded and he's on the calm link with storm it's like you have christine looking at him from one angle and then you have storm's face implicitly looking at for the whole side of the panel because she's in a different space but the way that it's framed they're both looking at him as he's like at the center of the display so that's again another series that's very conscious of the gaze and of course it's written by Roberto uh, Aguirre Sacasa openly gay creator of Riverdale who's well used to putting sort of queer gaziness into his texts so that's an interesting context for that as well absolutely I you know it's funny when you describe that I totally forgot about that specific moment where it's like he's literally being asked to choose between the two women mm-hmm. and but he's not just being asked to, to choose between two women he's asked between to being choose he's yeah he's being asked to choose between two obligations which is with christine it's a sexual i wouldn't call it an obligation but it's more like with christine it would be a sexual thing like if he decided mm-hmm. to stay with her they would be having sex with storm mm-hmm. if he's going with her it's a job like he's going for his job and he chooses the job and it's like i mean kurt have some fun buddy like <laughs> you work hard play hard you know you, you deserve it i mean that that's that's the whole thing with this character that's been going on for years and it's worked for a while but yeah i'm with you now it's like now you need to let him have fun he's always been the one that's being the good person by the end of it yes he thinks with his dick sometimes but at the end of the day when it really matters he makes the morally ethically right decision and now yeah he needs to be able to have some fun but you also have to do that without him losing his morality right and you can't just switch his character from oh he always does the right thing to fuck it i'm never gonna do the right thing anymore you have to find that balance and i think potentially that's where they could be going now i hope with this character because i think they need to go there is starting to find that balance between these two truths to him but we're still in the middle of it i i want to comment one before we get to the reader question or the listener questions reader questions listen to me i do want to comment one last thing about um, his choices for relationships and why I really liked Christine in the, in the time was 
it seemed like Marvel was trying to tell us that like a, a normal human just couldn't like him. It just felt yeah, like that. It felt yeah. like it felt like they were telling us like the only people who could truly love Kurt were either his sister or aliens who don't know what humans are and so yeah. they have no context to understand what a human even is because that's what cerise was like she shows up and she's like what does a human look like and they, and everyone's like oh, well you basically you're the only one who looks human in this entire room mm -hmm. so um that bothered me um as an early fan of it where it was like well i'm a normal human and i think he's hot so like i mean why wouldn't other normal humans think he's hot you know like that doesn't make like so i i appreciated christine so much because i thought like this makes sense he should have opportunities like this but then when they did nothing with it, it was like, oh, that's wasted. I completely agree. And I know many fans feel similarly. I've had that yeah. conversation before. Yeah. Well, it's time for Wanda to come in. And you know, <laughs> I do have an agenda. I do have an agenda. And I apologize, but it is an agenda. All right. Well, let's get into some questions. So uh, let's start with some serious questions first. So we'll do from um, uh, Do's Machines, a.k.a. Armin, is asking, what sex tropes do you think uh, are fitting for Kurt? are fitting for Kurt. Um, well, I mean, we didn't even get into sort of all the different sort of fan fiction tropes that are sort of attached to his body, but that might be sort of a whole oh other conversation. Yeah, I mean, I am part two. <laughs> very fascinated with the different ways that his tail gets eroticized. And there are certain conventions <laughs> about which parts of his tail are more sensitive than other parts of his tail. And different readers do different things with it, which I find interesting. Some people think the tip of his tail You're is the most sensitive. You're coming we're talking about the tail, because we have a whole After Dark episode planned oh, just yes. about his tail. Yeah, okay, yeah. good. Well, this is your opening salvo for it then and a lot of people focus on <laughs> the base of his tail as being particularly sensitive I've and seen that, yes. yeah that comes up a lot and it's certainly part of my fanon that his fur makes him particularly sensitive which I think makes yeah! sense because it would so yeah like those are some of the things I mean it's always very interesting to me because I mean I read fan fiction as a fan, obviously, but, mm -hmm. you know, I study these things too, so I inevitably have to bring that gaze to it as well. And I do just get very fascinated seeing the different ways that people use his body and sort of the different ways that they eroticize his body and the different places that they pick to be erogenous zones. And I think there's a lot of opportunities with his body because he's a completely fantasy category of difference. And because so many of these things are left up to the reader's imagination, you can do a lot of different things with it. And you can sort of make these different parts of his body meaningful to you in different ways. And I mean, I've talked a lot about female fans throughout this, but I mean, that's part of what makes his body accessible to lots of different types of gazes as well. Absolutely. No, I love that. That's totally <laughs> nothing to add. Nothing to add. Perfect. Um, all right. So I don't know if I can, this is a tough name. Uh, Rana Rana Rochelle slash Chibi Toaster asked, comic books have a history of over-sexualizing women. What do you think about how men have been treated in comics compared to women? Well, that's a big question. And that's like something I've, of course, written a lot about. Um, the basic trope is that female bodies in superhero comics tend to get exaggerated in terms of sexual features, especially TNA. Male superhero bodies are exaggerated as well, but they tend to be exaggerated in terms of muscles, which connotes their status rather than being erotic objects, their status as ego ideals for a presumed straight male fan. Mm -hmm. That is not to say the muscles aren't sexy. They are sexy. And obviously we sexualize male characters. It's a huge appeal of the genre for me in general is the fact that it is filled with beautiful men. And yet you can still argue that that's not 
intentionally prioritized the same way that sort of women's sexuality is prioritized in terms of those exaggerations of the body. Because if you look at sort of gay male pornography, male bodies tend to be rendered quite different there than they tend to be rendered in most superhero comics, right? And I mean, the same with anything sort of female gazy, you know, the ways that male bodies are depicted there is often different than the way that male bodies typically are depicted in, in superhero comics, right? Mainstream mm -hmm. superhero comics, I should be clear. But at the same time, those opportunities for eroticism are clearly present. It's a genre about beautiful men getting tangled up with other beautiful men and they're all wearing spandex, right? Mm -hmm. The thing that interests me about Nightcrawler is the ways that, because I feel uncomfortable with objectification from an ethics standpoint in terms of reducing people to objects. I don't want to do that, except for in those consensual situations when everybody's agreed and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But with Kurt, because he has this fantasy difference, because he's a demonic monstrous character that always interferes with a straightforward objectification, you know, when I'm objectifying Kurt's body, his body is an extension of his character. The way that he thinks about his body, the way that he uses his body is a reflection of his acceptance, is a it's a reflection of his body positivity, it's a reflection of who he is as a character. So to me, when I'm sort of objectifying him, that's always character-based in a way. And that's sort of one of the ways that I find him very accessible as a character as well, because there's sort of an erotics of consent that's almost built into that character. And that's getting a little bit academic with it, but <laughs> I could go on. No, on I love that, though. That. I love it. I'm going to have to talk to you more about that, because I, I in particular, in general, am fascinated with just consent in general with with, with stuff like that and hearing uh, eroticized consent like that fascinates the hell out of me. <laughs> um yeah, no, I love it too. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and throw a plug out there for everybody. Uh, if you want more information on uh, superhero sexuality, fantasy, and the superhero, you should definitely pick up Anna's book. It is available on Amazon. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, <laughs> Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero. Check out Amazon. Uh, they got the book on there. And you know what? Actually, guys, I'm feeling, I'm feeling nice. And uh, let's do a giveaway. Check out our Twitter. We'll announce the giveaway there. I'm going to give away to one lucky winner, uh, the Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero uh, by Anna. Um, one of you guys is going to win it. It looks amazing. And uh, why not? Yeah. So someone's going to win big. So yeah. Um, well, let's just keep going. We got two more questions. The next two are kind of fun questions. So let's see if uh, Anna has any, has uh, some, something she can, some info she can give us on it. Um, I think we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll leave that one for last. So Comic Goth asks, is he queer or European or is he queer and European? <laughs> I, I won't answer that specifically, but I will say that, I mean, I talked earlier about the gender fluidity of his body. You know, there can be an inherent queerness to mutants in the sense that the mutant metaphor resonates so strongly with queerness, you know, mm -hmm. themes of hiding and showing and presence and absence and all of these things. And of course, the persecution that they face based on who they are, right? Who you're born as, right? Mm -hmm. Um so I think that there's an inherent queerness to Kurt's body in particular in terms of some of these diverse sexual possibilities that we talked about. I think that's what I'll say about it. I don't I don't want to I don't want to get spicy and weighing in on the specifics of that question. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> to uh, about the uh the queerness of the mutant metaphor in general. I think it's interesting you bring that up because I I I'm going to challenge our listeners like find me a single X-Man that has not been slash fixed. That's not like Glob Herman. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like all the X-Men are queer. Like find me a single X-Man that has not been slash fixed because e like every single one, because I think you're right. It's that metaphor is there. 
regardless of who the character is, it's it it exists that that queer metaphor of uh, you know of of being a mutant is is there. Um, we'll 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 end on this final question. Um, Ink. And I'm going to read exactly the way that they posted it. They said, I think an important question to ask is, is Kurt a fuckboy? <laughs> well, I'm almost interested to put that back to you, Lisa, because you're the one who wants him to be in this committed relationship and everything. See, I don't think he's a fuckboy. No. Yeah. I think, see, I think Kurt ends up in fuckboy situations because he desperately wants a relationship and so he just you know he just ends up in these fuckboy really it's like fuckboy situations but well he, you, you know you have to define fuckboy i think everybody has a different definition That's so true too. is a fuckboy the one that just sleeps around all the time and doesn't care about the uh, presumably you know in this you know heteronormative society the woman's feelings um is it the person that ends up getting seduced by women all the time is it this if it's the one that's seduced by women all the time kurt's a fuck boy but if you're talking about a fuck boy and that he just fucks around all the time and doesn't care no kurt cares more than anybody that's why he's a simp he's an emotional simp for these women particularly but you could also argue for men you know especially people that ship him and logan together he's a simp he is so emotionally attached to all these people so quickly so that is true i don't think he can be a stereotypical fuck boy because that tends to be negative and imply that the person that's the fuck boy doesn't care about people or the people he sleeps with he cares more than the people that sleep with him usually (laughs) yeah i was gonna say he's a bit he's a bit too romantic to me to sort of fit comfortably within that label although i think he has elements of that I mean, the mm-hmm. scene that I think about is the final issue from Claremont's Nightcrawler solo from, oh, when was that? 2014? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a scene, so after he has the uh, weekend at the private hideaway with Bloody Bess, who is apparently Betsy Braddock, which I that's a whole ship that we didn't talk about. But anyway, <laughs> um, that's, what, that's what Claremont wanted to do. So anyway. Um, and then Kurt has the picture of him and Bess, you know, or he's got his tail wrapped down her leg and she's kind of reaching into his shirt. And then Betsy Braddock asks him, well, what about Amanda? And Amanda's sort of dead, but sort of lost in another dimension. And Kurt says, different bond, no less real. And that's a really interesting line for me because that's doing a lot of heavy lifting, that line. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, you could go in sort of a polyamory direction with it. I think that that would be pushing it. I think for me, it's more that Kurt thinks relationships are meaningful some relationships are sexual some relationships are romantic some relationships are romantic and sexual but to him they're all meaningful it's still a bond to him and he still finds meaning in those relationships regardless of how they work out or regardless of the eventual substance of those relationships so i don't know whether that i think that makes him too romantic to be a fuckboy but just my two cents on it i'm i'm he can be whatever anybody wants him to be to to cater to their personal <laughs> We're not trying to start wars, but also he's a romantic sap and we love him. <laughs> he's not a fuck boy. He's a fuck man. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. I feel like I'm in like early 2000s feminism course talking about like Buffy at the time. Oh but like, be a man, not a boy. <laughs> Kurt Wagner I... defies stereotypes. He is Kurt Wagner. His gender That's is Kurt. Cool. His sexuality is Kurt. I love it. I love it. I, how, I don't even think there's a better way to end this. That's perfect. Anna, thank you so much for coming by. That was, this has been amazing. You guys, this is, 
This has been an absolute pleasure. Our very first guest, the absolutely phenomenal, fantastic Dr. Anna Pappard, here to share her curtain sexuality. And will you come back for other episodes? <laughs> I'm always happy to talk to talk Kurt. I it's not just sexy Kurt that I'm interested in too. I've did I did a Claremont run thread this week about sort of the symbolism of teleporting. There are many things I love about Kurt. Oh, trust we we're going to cover it all. So, we'll get you back, but it's it's been awesome. Um thank you guys all for joining us for this uh, week. You guys missed that. I just accidentally smacked my microphone as I, we're, we're just, we're, we're professionals here, everybody. We're professionals. Um, thank you all for coming to our, our podcast this week. It has been a simply amazing week to have you here. Anna, please tell everybody, what are you up to? What are you doing? Where can we find you? Um, yeah, you can find me writing semi-regularly for ComicsXF. You can find me on Twitter at the very boring name, um, Papard underscore Anna. You can find me on the Gosh Golly Wow podcast every week. You can just find us on Twitter at Gosh Golly Wow, or our website is goshgollywow.com. And I'll recommend a particular piece of writing, which is relevant to this episode, which is a piece for the middle spaces. It's open access. It's pop academic, very accessible, um, called Blue Becomings, Revisiting Excalibur Number 4. And it's sort of about the sexuality of Kurt's body and my desire to have and be him through Megan's transformations into him. And your listeners might enjoy it. I love the sound of that. Speaking of Megan, I mean, Kurt's been with Megan and Betsy. Like, poor Brian. Is there a woman in his life Kurt has? I mean, he's been with Saturnine, too, because Andrew Lee was Saturnine. <laughs> poor Brian. I mean, this guy can't be with a single woman that Kurt's not, like, on top of. Not that Betsy is a woman he's with, but, you know. Now with the current, you know, after Wave X, you know, the the whole pregnancy and everybody's um, conspiracy theories about that. <laughs> oh, mm -mm. Well, that, that, that's a topic for another day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyway thank you guys again for joining us my name again is lisa you can find me at the og nocturne that's n-a-c-h-t-u-r-n-e on twitter you can also find us our our website is simplyamazingpod.com all of our links are there you can find us at on twitter at simplyamazingpod it's s-i-m-p-l-y-a-m-z-i-n-g pod uh lauren where can they find you uh just come stalk me on twitter at friendly mbhd by come bother me you can find other places to bother me there <laughs> there you go perfect yeah take a look out uh, for our twitter for this contest we're going to be running it's going to be very exciting and fun someone's going to be getting the super sex sexuality fantasy and the super fantasy and the superhero uh by anna papard uh and there will be a test so uh study up <laughs> no of course not uh and for those of you at home listening right now sniffing eggs that have gone a little bad because you want to get a little closer to Kurt and smell that bamf, just remember that you are simply amazing. <laughs> <laughs>